0: Welcome to the German Historical Institute and this evening's uh, lecture by Professor Ute Daniel. Ute Daniel is the third Gerda Henker visiting professor to the German Historical Institute and the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I would like to welcome you in the name of both these institutions. And I would like to particularly welcome this evening Dr. Angela Kuhn from the Gerda Henkel Foundation and we are extremely grateful that the Henkel Foundation agreed to support this joint visiting professorship for another two years. This is a very generous support indeed and perhaps I could mention here for the British public that the Henkel Foundation is in many ways a unique foundation. It was established in 1976 by Lisa Muskel in memory of her mother, Gerda Henkel. It is a charitable organisation which, and that's the unique thing, concentrates solely on supporting the humanities, and particularly those with a historical focus, such as archaeology, history, art history, history of law. And uh, we are very grateful that we can profit from this specialisation. Well, as you can see from the response to this evening's lecture, Dr. Kuhn, this Gada Henkel Visiting Professorship is considered here as a very high-profile program which attracts a lot of interest. It enhances cooperation not only between the German Historical Institute and the LSE, but also between uh, German universities and other academic institutions here in Britain. So please give our thanks to the, and greetings to the Foundation, also its chairman, Dr. Hanseler, and its committees. And I would also like to thank, at this point, uh, Benedikt Stuchtei, the deputy director of this institute, under whose rings this visiting pro- professorship has developed and who wrote the applications. And sort of not only greetings, but also thanks this evening go to our colleagues of the, from the LSE, This programme works really excellently. It has initiated contacts and corporations beyond the limits of this special programme. So thanks for your efforts, uh, all the work you have put into this uh, uh, collaborative enterprise. So again, welcome to the lecture and it's now my particular honour and pleasure to briefly introduce the main person of this evening, Professor Ute Daniel. Professor Daniel is one of the most distinguished colleagues in the field of modern history in Germany. She has been very influential as a theorist of cultural history. Her compendium Kulturgeschichte, theories, practices, keywords, is an indispensable tool for all historians interested in this approach. It has seen at least five editions in German since it appeared in 2001 and has been translated into several other languages. Ute Daniel received her PhD from the University of Bielefeld, where she worked on a topic which accompanied her all her academic life, namely the First World War. Her PhD, although it's not on the war fronts themselves, But it's a very much acclaimed book on working class women in the war. The title of the English translation is The War From Within, German Working Class Women in the First World War. For her postdoctoral thesis, The Habilitation, which Ute Daniel submitted at the University of Siegen. She chose, as it's the uh, tradition in Germany, an entirely different topic, namely the history of court theatre in the 18th and 19th century. Um, so it was still possible then to do sort of 20th century and 18th century history or combine that in one career. This topic of court theatres is also connected to a, a major research area of Daniel, which is the history of publics and the public sphere in modern history, and that is also the main research area where this project uh, of this evening now is located. Ute Daniel received a major research grant for a project on the rise of the mass media and their transformation in the 20th century. This is a large comparative project comprising studies on Germany, Britain and the United States. This Gerda Henkel visiting professorship enables her now to work on the British part of this Opus Magnum while she is here in London. Ute Daniel is not only a prolific academic writer, I will not mention all the other monographs, edited volumes and articles she has published, but she is also active in many Uh, capacities in academic organizations. She was, for example, for eight years member of the advisory board of our Partner Institute in Paris. She's a member of the Göttingen Academy of Science and of many other academic boards and organizations. I will not mention them here all. Tonight, Ute Daniel will speak to us on Goebbels' War and Propaganda the media logic of the Third Reich. This is also part of this major undertaking, but of course not on British, but now on German history. We are greatly looking forward uh, to the lecture and the questions and answers afterwards, and we are really very, very pleased to have you here. You've already become an indispensable part of the German Historical Institute. So welcome and thank you for talking us tonight.
1: Thank you very much for this very kind introduction, and there is even more reason for me to be deeply grateful. I have to thank three institutions, already mentioned, for the exhilarating opportunity of coming to London for a whole year. The Gerda Henkel Foundation, Frau Dr. Kühn, is here. The London School of Economics and Politics, and I'm very glad said that some of my new colleagues are here today and the German Historical Institute. It is due to the three of them that I got what money can't buy and that is time. A whole year in London which enables me to visit archives and libraries and by this to pursue my research on the history of mass media and politics in the 20th century century. I'm very obliged as well for the opportunity to make students familiar with this topic and to discuss it with them. Actually, I think only a mouse, having managed to break in the cheese factory, might experience similar flashes of unmitigated happiness as I do uh, uh, in reach of my sources, heaps of sources for my research field, I'm now able to work myself through, so to speak. Uh, that's great. <laughs> my lecture this evening, as Andreas Gestrich said, is a first upshot of my research. Um, its topic is the notorious Propaganda minister of the Third Reich and his nowadays most famous speech. I must confess in advance that I'm not going to show you a single picture. Even though the pictures play a very important role in the aftermath of Goebbels' speech. But all of you know them, I'm quite sure. And I have reasons not to underline the associations connected with this visual material. There are some images which literally everyone knows. Some of these images known throughout the world represent a clear message that everyone associates with them. Very occasionally this identity of image and message functions over long periods of time and beyond many national boundaries. One of these very rare cases is the recordings of the speech by Josef Goebbels, Nazi propaganda minister in the Berlin Sport Palace on the 18th of February 1943. For decades, these recordings have conjured up the same associations. Associations which have become a universal Interpretative model for the so-called Third Reich, the routinized rhetorical gestures of the uniformed speaker and his quacking voice represent the Nazi's leadership style, which consists of suggestion, seduction, and dumping down. The frenetic clapping of the public, open-mouthed with enthusiasm, represents the unconditional approval of the regime. And the spine-chilling scream in reply to the question whether they want total war stands for the fact that the German population went along with the regime right up to the end and did not protest against the war and infringement of human rights committed by the Germans during the course of the war. So these images are far more than just snapshots. They contain something like a model, a theory of the Nazi system of rule. This theory is not shared by historical research today. Yet it is important, very important I think, if we want to understand how the Third Reich functioned and what role the mass media, one of the most important means, of conveying suggestion, seduction and dumping down played in it or did not play perhaps for the crucial question posed by these recordings is indeed what importance propaganda and in this context the media actually played in maintaining Nazi power. This is the question I want to look at tonight. I shall ask what significance the Nazis themselves thought propaganda or the media had and shall put these notions into their historical context. After that, I will describe Goebbels' notorious speech in the Sportpalast in a way that is slightly different from usual. The following quotation from Hitler's Mein Kampf will probably be familiar to all of you. Quote, all propaganda must be popular and its intellectual level must be adjusted to the most limited intelligence among those it is addressed to. Consequently, the greater the mass it is intended to reach, the lower its purely intellectual level will have to be. In consequence of these facts, all effective propaganda must be limited to a very few points And must harp on these slogans until the last member of the public understands what you want him to understand by your slogan. What the man who was later to become the Führer says here about his view of propaganda corresponds more or less to the image widespread today of the way in which the Third Reich directed the people via the media. The key points in Hitler's statement are unmistakable. If the messages messages are formulated simply enough and repeated often enough, this is the key to steering people and their ideas in any direction you want. And Hitler says people are very suggestible. In other words, fairly naive consumers of the media. The effect described here to the propagandistic use of media or speeches, parades, is, if we follow Hitler's view, limitless. Propaganda appears to be a sort of all-purpose weapon for any ruler who wants to make use of it. So where does these fantasies of seduction and omnipotence come from? in a man who, though he was admittedly already famous for his oratorical gift, had so far only managed to use this gift to land up in Landsberg prison, where he wrote Mein Kampf. Hardly from the domestic and foreign policy success story that did not start till years later and was to create his reputation as the great Führer. These ideas, and Hitler wasn't the only one, who had them, that people could be influenced by propaganda and media of all sorts to a limitless extent, originated in the First World War, the German defeat, and the November Revolution, which in 1918-19 drove out the ruling elites of the Kaiserreich and replaced them with a government led by social democrats. Admittedly, it was not this new government that had ended the war. This was done by the German Army High Command under Hindenburg and Ludendorff. But these military men offloaded responsibility for the outcome of the war on to the new government and on to enemy propaganda during the war that had supposedly been of crucial significance for the outcome of the war. In Ludendorff's war memoirs published in 1919, this is what it says. there was no comrade for the army in a strong propaganda coming from the homeland. Germany failed in the fight against the psyche of the enemy nations while its army was victorious on the battlefields. While the Entente's propaganda had an ever more powerful effect on the German people and the German army and navy, it was also able to maintain determination to win the war in its own countries and to turn the neutral states against us. Soon there was, as you know, I presume, talk of a stab in the back, carried out by enemy propaganda and by those inside Germany who opposed the war, considered above all to be lefties and Jews. These enemies, both inside and outside Germany, so the theory went had stabbed the otherwise victorious German army in the back, like traitors. traitors. Hitler also embraced this theory of treachery. After the war, he had become the leading figure in a small folkish association that was mainly active in Bavaria, and from 1920 onwards was known as the Nationalsozialistische Deutsche Arbeiterpartei, NSDAP. However, Hitler's NSDAP differed from the other groupings and parties of a völkisch racist type, in one very interesting aspect. They clung far more persistently to the theory of treachery from within. In 1923, the NSDAP was the only party that did not join the United Front against the occupation of the Ruhr, and the passive resistance in the Ruhr area which caused it considerable problems of legitimacy. On the day of the French entry, Hitler gave the reasons for this attitude in the Munich Circus Krone,, quote, "Not down with France, but down with the November criminals." End quote. So he shouted to the 9,000 supporters gathered at the circus. The November criminals, for Hitler, these were the agents of international Judaism who had invented Marxism in order to conquer the world. These rogues, as Hitler wrote two weeks later in the party newspaper Völkischer Beobachter to explain his minority position, had stolen the weapon from the German people's fist. They must be pursued, he said, for unrelenting revenge For only after a necessary cleansing of German blood could Germany once again become strong enough to defeat its foreign enemies. This was the Nazi watchword throughout the Weimar Republic. The real enemy was to be found within the borders of Germany. He was on the left, was Jewish and was responsible for the fact that Germany had lost the First World War. This enemy must be dealt with unsparingly so that Germany could once again become strong enough to confront its foreign enemies. The NSDAP leadership followed this line to the letter when in 1932 they gave their SR troops an order that amounted to high treason. The SR, which along with other defense units and the Reichswehr kept secret weapons depots depots on Germany's eastern border was commanded in the event of an enemy invasion, not to fight against the enemy but to fight with them against the German Republic to conquer the state of the November criminals. The then Chancellor, Brüning, could not make any use of this proof that the Nazis were endangering the state because this would have meant exposing the secret armaments and endangering all the foreign policy successes achieved so far. As we know, once it came to power in 1933, Hitler's government followed the model that had been put forward to the letter. They purified German blood by persecuting, expelling, imprisoning and killing the supposed traitors within the country. This was not a matter of propaganda, but of violence and criminality. Belief in the soft but relentless power of media seduction continued to be proclaimed, as you know, but in the fight against these enemies within, propaganda's only role was to make plausible the notion that between 1914 and 1918, the enemy powers had used the media to wake up a sort of Trojan horse inside. Germany. So, belief in the effectiveness of propaganda and belief in the treachery that had conquered Germany and set up the republic were two sides of the same coin. But the end of the war and the revolution of 1918-19 held one more message for the Nazis, and that is the need to recognize the fragility of power. They were not the only ones to be totally surprised when in 1918 the elites of the Kaiserreich disappeared without any resistance. After all, there still seemed to be a state entity that was stable and seemed indestructible, whose power and administrative apparatus, even down to the local offices, had continued to function during the years of the war. A state which did not have to accept any enemy invasion and in which the trams still ran regularly. But all of a sudden, the people who had occupied the key positions in this state had disappeared. The Kaiser to Holland, quartermaster-general Ludendorff to Sweden, the kings and princes stepped down from their thrones. Garrison commanders and mayors obligingly handed over keys and weapons to the workers' and soldiers' committees and went home. And all this without a fight, without any fuss at all. It must have been an earth-shattering experience. Even the workers who populated the streets of Berlin seemed amazed. Some contemporaries explained the phenomenon by saying that the impression of stability had been deceptive, that for political elites to disappear with so little resistance, something must already have been wrong. In one case, and indeed one particularly interesting case, one of the gang that was later to lead the Third Reich drew different conclusions. It was the propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, who in September 1941 confided to his diary, and only here, a realization that without the experience of the November Revolution he hardly would ever have come to namely, quote, that authority is only a fiction and that it must therefore be protected carefully so that it is not, as could occur, placed under any serious train. Sometimes it seems to me as if authority and revolution always confront one another as combatants and that revolution is constantly trying to take a step forward and then waits to see what authority will do. Although one may allow revolution to come a step nearer in order to find out what it wants, And who is actually part of it, but it must never be allowed to come so near that there is not longer any room to draw back and strike. These remarks on the problem of authority, which sound positively postmodern, were made by a Nazi minister who, for a good eight years, had been telling the public that only the decadent democracies corrupted by Jews had problems with authority. According to Goebbels and all other representatives of the Third Reich, the German state, based on the fuhrer Führerprinzip, was the answer to this and other weaknesses in Western democracies. It's top-down power structures guaranteed stability for all time. In the state run according to the Führer principle, social tensions, protest, not to mention revolution, were not envisaged. All the population had to do was to follow. As the professor of constitutional law, Ernst Forsthoff, put it in 1933, following the regime's line to a T., The authority of the Führer is all-embracing and total. It combines within it all means of political organization. It extends to all areas of the people's lives. It encompasses all Volksgenossen who are obliged to show the Führer loyalty and obedience. However, commitment to obedience below also meant commitment to success above. For a power that is defined as all-embracing also has all-embracing responsibility. Whatever was missing, be it military success or fresh vegetables, it was always the state's and the Führer's responsibility. If something didn't work, it was up to the propaganda minister to explain away failures or to stop them coming to light. To this end, he could use the mass media, which were obliged to report and comment according to the minister's line, or else to leave this or that out. It would certainly not be too great an exaggeration to say that this was the main purpose of Nazi propaganda and media control, namely to present reality in such a way that it did not contradict the claim that the Führer principle worked, functioned. This worked well enough at the Nuremberg Party Convention where total obedience was embodied in the parading masses. But otherwise, the unforeseen consequences of the Führer principle proved to be a problem. Goebbels was well aware of the fact that in many cases it was not enough to steer the image of reality projected by the media. As Gauleiter of Berlin, for instance, he did not even try to explain away problems with the food supply, for example, or difficulty with trains bringing soldiers back on leave from the front during the war. Rather, he tried in the classical way to overcome the problems. (coughs) Or, to give another example... He banned a football match if there was any danger that the German team might lose. (laughs) During the war, however, Goebbels' difficulties in maintaining the illusion that the total Führer state was successfully at work increased. Since the turn of the tide outside Moscow at the end of 1941, the German fighting forces were reporting far more setbacks than successes even more dangerous for belief in the Führer state and its ability to function, was the fact, increasingly apparent to broad sections of the population, that one of the top leaders of the Reich, Hermann Göring, wasn't much good in leading the Luftwaffe. Propaganda was no help here. Göring was responsible for the Luftwaffe. And the people in Western Germany and soon also in Berlin and elsewhere, saw with their own eyes that enemy planes were successfully bombing their cities. The Luftwaffe and the anti-aircraft defense obviously didn't have any answer to that. What Goebbels also found profoundly disturbing was that since the start of the Russian campaign, the Führer had withdrawn more and more from German domestic politics. He hardly ever appeared in public, spoke on the radio less and less often and de facto left internal politics to the Gauleiter and other officials of the Nazi hierarchy. It was up to them whether the home front supported the troops by limiting their consumption of goods that were in short supply and releasing men for military service. From about mid-1942, these material and practical aspects of the conduct of war occupied Goebbels more and more. As his diary entries and other sources show, for him, these practical material problems represented the real problem, not the mood or the morale of the people. Basically, the propaganda minister wanted a new office, that of a sub-dictator in whom all the authority needed to organize the war economy and to deploy people in factories and at the front more effectively would be united and to bring all the other notables of the Nazi state, in particular the Gauleiter, into line. So Goebbels, undertook something never actually envisaged in the Third Reich. He launched an attack on his comrades, the Gauleiter, who since Hitler had retreated to his headquarters had become veritable princelings. In their own Gau, they were absolute rulers and lived in appropriate style. Without Hitler's support, no one could force them to subordinate their own needs to the war effort let alone to make certain sacrifices. So Goebbels was on his own if he wanted to get from the Gauleiter what he considered to be absolutely necessary for the ongoing of the war. And what he considered to be absolutely necessary since the second half of 1942 was, amongst other things, the introduction of conscription for women. Goebbels didn't see why the total Führer state should not be able to do what, as he thought, was being done in England, that is, fully exploit the female capacity for work. Goebbels at least believed this, even if the German labour market specialists could have told him something different. Germany went to war with a greater proportion of working women, which is why the number didn't seem to have grown very much. And it was not only the German war economy, but also that of other countries that had difficulties in mobilizing women, especially those who had never been employed or had only worked part-time before the war. In any case, the shortage of workers and soldiers in Germany was far too great for women to have been able to plug the gaps. But according to Goebbels, there should no longer be any such thing as maids or stay-at-home women in Germany anymore. Goebbels' own wife, Magda, went along with her husband's ideas, at least to a degree. In a way that was designed for the media, she regularly let herself be seen in the uniform of a Red Cross sister. The wives of other Nazi notables and politicians did even attempt this sort of thing. And the Gauleiter and other high officials continued to indulge in their luxurious lifestyles by engaging maids, cooks, and other staff. By now, Goebbels must have realized that even if all the Nazi bigwigs got rid of their servants at a stroke, there would be basically no substantial increase in the fighting forces. So this was about something else. It was a symbolic gesture to demonstrate to the people that the Volksgemeinschaft really did exist, that all the Germans from top to bottom were making sacrifices. This would underpin the Führer principle and at the same time subdue the constantly smoldering resentment about them up there having a good life while we down here were bearing the full burden of the war. Had Goebbels been a minister in a non-totalitarian state, he could have used the mass media for his purpose. Since the 18th century, differences of opinion and power struggles within the political classes had promoted in several countries a pluralized press landscape the press must have been just as important to the political classes everywhere as a place for slugging out their divergences as it was as an organ for making announcements. Which is why parties and individual politicians who wanted to make something of themselves sought, if they could afford it to own a newspaper or at least to have crucial influence on one. Now, The German propaganda minister certainly did have decisive influence on newspapers. But for him, this was the problem, not the solution. Mass media that were supposed to reflect the functioning Führer state were only good for that and nothing else, because they contained exactly and exclusively what was wanted from above what Goebbels could have done with is what is generally known as public opinion, a multi-voiced media landscape whose reportage did not follow the party line to the last letter. But this is exactly what he himself had done away with in 1933. The only remaining means of expressing power Struggles within the political elite was violence. Hitler had resorted to violence in 1934 when he eliminated the SR by murdering its leaders. In the summer of 1944, on the 20th of July, the would-be assassins also resorted to violence when they tried to kill Hitler. Violence was not a means available to Goebbels. He settled instead upon a different means of expression, more in keeping with his sphere of responsibility as propaganda minister, namely staging an event whose symbolic importance went far beyond the event itself. The surplus of meaning that such a staging might evoke could transmit something that could not be said directly because power struggles and competition were not supposed to be part of the system. What Goebbels was reacting to with this project was not only the threatening military situation, I want to argue, and not only the struggle for power amongst the Nazi elite, but also a systematic weakness in the media, dictatorship. With the press controlled by the Nazis, it was possible to attack enemies, but not other powerful people within the state. It was only possible to exert pressure on them by simulating, to some extent, an independent public opinion. In other words, the propaganda minister invented what today would be called a media event. The famous speech at the sport palace of February 1943 could be described as such an event, deliberately staged and conveyed by the media in order to reach and influence a specific target group which does not necessarily have to be present. The precondition for describing it in such a way is that the traditional way of reading the speech, according to which the people in the room were the most important target group of the event, has to be suspended. Incidentally, Goebbels' contemporaries as experienced media users and as objects of propaganda campaigns for many years, were only in very few cases in danger of confusing the appearance of the event with its message, even if they were not yet familiar with the term media event. Goebbels' diary entry five days before the event, says much about the intended effect. Quote, as many prominent figures as possible should be invited, and I will give a speech whose radicalism will surpass anything that has gone before. And then by looking at how the public reacts, the prominent figures will be able to see which way the wind is blowing. Once again I shall have this gathering broadcast via all transmitters in order to exert pressure on public opinion in the individual Gaue as well so that a Gauleiter who previously balked at this or that hard measure might now deign to put right what he previously failed to do since otherwise the pressure of public opinion on him would be too great. End quote. So the public in the room and the way they behaved was actually supposed to be the message. It was meant to symbolize public opinion, which Goebbels otherwise hardly ever talked about public opinion, and if he did, then generally in inverted commas, as media concealment of attempts to manipulate opinion in democracies. Here, In this entry, in his diary, he used the expression straight away, twice and without any inverted comma, as if he actually believed that such a thing like public opinion existed in his state. The most important thing about the public was, for Goebbels, their wild approval, their total acclamation of the event. Looking back some months later, in the year 1943, Goebbels was to write that on the eighteenth of february, quote, in Berlin applause was staged, end quote. That, in the same entry, in the middle of the year, quote, a great theatre of applause, end quote, was put on. So we have to see the Sport Palest Quasi as a the stage of a massive imaginary theater on which the cheering public is the most important actor. And where the celebrities, like Goebbels said, that is, the Gauleiter and other Nazi notables play the actual audience. It is also quite conceivable to see Hitler himself amongst the virtual public Goebbels imagined. Hitler had to feel that was what Goebbels wanted, that he was being forced to put a stop to his followers, dereliction of duty. Every media event needs a suitable occasion for staging it. Since the autumn of 1942, the minister had been waiting for one. As an experienced propagandist, he knew that something of the moment is needed if the staging is to have a powerful effect the end of the 6th Army in Stalingrad handed him the very thing. The shock was sufficiently great that Goebbels was able to come somewhere near his ideal of successful war propaganda, namely Churchill's so-called blood, sweat and tears speech of the 13th of May 1940 to the House of Commons. Quite clearly, the German propaganda minister was one of those who suffered from the compulsive whitewashing of the German media, even though he himself was responsible for it. Now he had an opportunity of his own to make a dramatic appeal that should motivate the people to make the ultimate effort and which should bring fear and trembling to all those who lacked motivation, especially to those at the top. That at least was the theory. For the 18th of February, Goebbels ordered the audience to be composed in such a way that no insubordination was likely. Those present were largely party members, dignitaries, officers and so on, prominent people from the cultural sphere and lots of representatives of the media. The two-hour-long speech in the Sportpalast on the 18th of February, a Thursday, adopted in various places a tone that pointed to those who were implicitly its actual addressees? Quote, we no longer want, said Goebbels, in the interests of maintaining a standard of living almost appropriate to times of peace for a certain section of the population to weaken the German potential and thereby endanger our conduct of war, end quote. This was a sentence that brought in the Sport Palace fourth, the interjection, bastards. Reference to the fact that the state leadership should not allow, quote, by far the greatest proportion of the people to bear the whole burden of the war, while a small passive section tried to avoid the burdens and responsibility for the war, end quote, provoked cries of, hang them. Long passages of the speech were devoted to German women particularly those who, till now, as Goebbels said, have not been involved in the work process. Clear threats were made that after the war shirkers would be dealt with. Anyone who employed maids should either let them go or else apply for work themselves. The final rhetorical high point was, as you all know, the infamous Ten Questions. These represented in oratorical form Goebbels' aim of attributing the key role to the mass of the public and their unconditional approval. For those present, reacted spontaneously to every question with total acclamation. To what extent this spontaneity was prepared, in other words, whether the public was given some sort of signal or people were hired to start off the applause cannot be clearly established because of lack of sources. So now I'll give you a few extracts um, of the uh, last uh, section of the speech and I'll quote the interjections too. Eighthly, I ask you Do you especially, you women yourselves, want the government to see to it that every last worker, even women, is made available for the war conduct? Women's voices cry, yes, and Goebbels goes on, and that everywhere possible the woman should step in to release the men for the front. Do you want that? Passionate cries, especially women's voices, yes, loud applause. Ninthly, I ask you, do you agree that, if necessary, the most radical measures should be taken against a small group of shirkers and dealers, passionate cries, yes, loud applause, who in the midst of war want to play at peace and exploit the people's misery for their own selfish purposes, cries, hang them, shouting. Do you agree, cries, yes, indeed, (laughs) that anyone who does not take the war seriously should lose his head, passionate cries, yes, loud applause, end quote. This speech was broadcast on the radio after the event, that is, on the Thursday evening, and it was repeated on the following Sunday morning. So that the message would come over loud and clear in this medium too. additional applause was filtered in. Nonetheless, Or perhaps because of this, Goebbels himself had to admit that the effect of the speech on the radio audience was not as good as in the sport palest. The text appeared in the newspapers on the Friday. The editors had already been given the text and the rules for its reproduction at midday on Thursday, the day before they uh, printed it. They had been instructed to give special attention to the 10 questions ...that the minister was going to pose at the end of his speech... ...and to make sure that any photos were of the public and not of the minister. In the newsreel, so in the cinemas, film of the Sport Palast event... ...was shown on the 24th of February, that is six days later. Since the cameraman had been instructed to pay special attention to the public's reactions... ...the clips of the audience in the film for the newsreel played a very important role... Not least, you know know the pictures, the enthusiastic reactions of the prominent figures could be seen, Heinrich, Georger and so on. As usual, in the first weeks after the event, the propaganda minister was completely convinced of his oratorical achievement. Once again, he expected his words to change the world. In his diary entry for the 20th of February, he talks of a Sort of silent coup d'etat, end quote, taking place. But he had to admit that the main target group, the Gauleiter, seemed to be unimpressed. And that the population had understood the speech only too well. This was clear from the Nazi version of public opinion research, the security service SD. Reports. What did the SD reports say about the response to the speech in the Sport Palace? In the reports of the 22nd of February, it says, "Quote: The population was grateful to the leaders for finally speaking quite openly and coming clean. Various people remarked that Dr. Goebbels pointed the situation blacker than it is in order to give more weight to the totalization measures." There were diverse reactions to the last section of the speech. Although everyone generally emphasized the forcefulness of the 10 questions, people and party members from all quarters expressed the fact that the propagandistic aim of these questions and answers was all too obvious to the audience and readers." End quote. As far as I know, there is no record of Goebbels' reaction to this report. What a shame. It would have been nice to know whether Goebbels noticed reference to the fact that in the meantime, the German population had become quite savvy about media and propaganda. In other words, that they were, were obvious, absolutely capable of identifying the intended effect and the means of bringing it about, and sometimes even of criticizing this. But it got even worse. In the SD reports for the 25th of February, it said, quote, the majority of the population were occupied as much as ever with the measures for totalizing the war, initially the employment of women. A series of statements indicates that the attitude of the working population to the employment of women who had previously not worked or had stopped working was characterized by an undisguised, often positively mean Schadenfreude, and sly observation of members of the upper classes and wide-ranging skepticism about the will and ability of the leaders to implement the measures really strictly and fairly. Envy, suspicion and prejudice had never been as evident as now. The report continues. In many cases, working class or middle class women had said that their willingness to work was dependent on fine ladies or certain women named specifically, for example, co-residents of their house, also being summoned to work in factories. From this point of view, members of the lower classes would not be keen to work because of willingness to make a real sacrifice, but would regard it as compulsory measure imposed by the state until they had been taught by example something different about their fears concerning the behavior of the wealthy and upper classes." End quote. This was not the effect Goebbels had envisaged. Behind these expressions of annoyance with the leadership and the Nazi upper classes bordering on class warfare lurked his archenemy, the workers who once again could prove authority to be a fiction. Not least, this reaction must have been the reason why he gave up his public attacks on the Gauleiter. His next speech in the sport palace on the 5th of June of the same year was more successful. This time the effect was as anticipated. This time Goebbels stuck to a simple recipe for success, though a recipe that was in danger of wearing a bit thin. He talked about the thing that was desired most passionately, namely German military revenge for the air raids. In Western Germany, this gave rise to the hope that it would soon no longer be necessary to spend the night in the cellar. Paul Heinrich Wanzen, an editor from Münster, utterly loyal to the regime, described these reactions in his extensive war diary, a very interesting source. The same journalist doesn't appear to have heard anything about Goebbels' February speech at least nothing that he considered worthy of recording. Given the fact that he otherwise had German propaganda and its ministry, quasi his boss, firmly in view, this is certainly revealing. So the media event of the speech in the Sportpalast of the 18th of February, 1943, shared the same fate as many such events. It provoked all sorts of reactions, both intended and unintended. Some people said they were thrilled because they were carried away by it. These allegedly included journalists at the press table in the sport palace who really should have been writing it all down, not cheering with the crowd. On the other hand, other correspondents present don't remember anything like that, but rather that those golden peacocks, in the other words, the Nazi big wigs, standing around the press table glared furiously at the journalists who were writing instead of cheering. Many people who had not been present and on whom the SD eavesdropped understood the message only too well and converted it into statements loaded with resentment. One or two people didn't get any of it. Some people distanced themselves. Bernard Minetti, for example, the famous playwright, even did so right in the thick of it at the sport palace by resolutely pressing his lips shut instead of cheering with the crowd. Goebbels' own reaction, as I um, mentioned, ranged from initial delight with himself to the more negative realizations that all it had been was theater of applause and that the key message hadn't actually influenced its main target group. What Goebbels' couldn't know was this, the real story of the effect of the speech didn't really begin until long after his death. He would probably have been amazed had he known that future generations would interpret his event far more unambiguously than his contemporaries had done, namely as an expression of what he wanted to make absolutely clear to the Gauleiter that the people (coughs) supported him unconditionally when he called for them to support total war. Is it, I ask myself, possible that this interpretation says more about the future generations, about us, than it does about the contemporaries of the Third Reich? Would it maybe be better if we stopped depicting people of earlier times as naive (laughs) media consumers and passive targets of propaganda, even if this is a very conventional, general adopted approach? After all, this approach, I wonder about, makes us infinitely cleverer than our predecessors and it makes history so easily comprehensible.